Welcome to the second episode of the most notorious gangsters in the world. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Corey Franchise, the host, and as you know, I'm giving insight on each gangster's life. In more detail, I do my research and I try to bring the facts about the empire, the family, the rising, the falling, corruption, and how the organizations were ran. In today's episode, I want to talk about the next top gangster next to Al Capone, one of the hardest gangsters New York has ever seen, the Teflon Don, the Dapper Don, John Gotti. Born October 27, 1940, in the Bronx, New York. John grew up poor. He was the fifth of 13 children to be raised by his immigrant parents, John and Franny. The only income they had was from John's father's unpredictable day labor. By age 12, John was working as an errand boy for the underground club in the neighborhood, run by Carmen Fatico, who was a captain of the local Gambino family, one of the five largest organized crime families in New York City. Through Gotti's activity in the club, he met Neil Delacroce, who became his long life mentor. At age 14, he became the leader of a gang called the Fulton Rockaway Boys. They did robberies and carjackings. Gotti's had his toes crushed once trying to steal a cement mixer. The accident earned him another petty crime incident. Gotti was a bully. He had discipline problems. He dropped out at 16. By 18, the police department ranked Gotti as a low-level associate in the Fatico crew. But in 1973, John was offered to join the most powerful crime family, the Gambinos. Don Collar Gambino, the head of the family, his nephew was kidnapped and murdered by members of an Irish mob. He wanted revenge, and he offered Gotti his chance to make his bones in the family, meaning you have proved yourself and you're ready for membership in this family. Gotti took the opportunity and was part of the crew that killed James McGratney. And he was arrested, given seven years, but he made it out in two. When Gotti was released, he was awarded and initiated into the family and promoted straight to captain. He ran his own crew and they were ruthless and dangerous. By 1976, Gotti was a rising star in the New York crime organization. Then a change in the family would allow Gotti to aim higher in the ranks. After 20 years head of the family, Carlo Gambino died and his brother Paul Castellano took over. Castellano was more of a businessman than a street gangster. He didn't really want to associate himself with members of his own organized crime. He felt like he was too wealthy or important. He looked at crews like Gotti's as muscle, jawbreakers, and knee breakers, but not smart. So with everybody not eating because of Castellano, the crews struggled and were barely making it. This made Gotti grow hate toward Castellano, but that's not the only thing the Gambino family were facing. The federal government were planning to wage war on the mafia. For years, the mafia had prospered, being that only the lower level members got convicted, while the top guys, the brains of it all, kept their hands clean. But now the FBI would target the top men of the five families. So they started from scratch and looked for weak links. And one of the first targeted was Gotti. Gotti had a childhood friend named Angelo Ruggiero. He liked to talk a lot and run his mouth about all the gossip. In 1981, the FBI team got permission to tap Ruggiero's phone and bug his house. That's when they discovered that on top of everything else, they were moving 50 kilos of heroin every six months. In 1983, Ruggiero was arrested on drug charges, but not Gotti. 
because there were no links leading him to trafficking. Although the mafia made money with narcotics, many bosses banned their crews from dealing drugs on pain of death. This was the perfect way for Castellano to get rid of Gotti, so Gotti knew he had to strike first. But you can't just kill a mob boss, the rules are strict. He would need permission from the four other families. Also, he could be killed just for suggesting he wanted to take out his boss. So Gotti gambled, and surprisingly, three of the four bosses gave the okay to the capo to take out Castellano. Now he needed a team. In a brave move, Gotti approached his most powerful Gambino rival, Sammy Grovano. He encouraged him to be his right-hand man and help him take out Castellano. So they planned it out. Gotti found out inside information and found out that Castellano was having dinner at the Spark State House on December 6, 1985. They knew the exact hour and minute that Castellano would be eating dinner. So they assembled the crew that night and the streets were crowded. So it was definitely good for cover. They all wear white trench coats and the same hats. So everyone looked the same. They blended in, and when they saw Castellano pull up and step out of the car, four gunmen shot Castellano numerous times, killing him. In a few days, the Gambino family knew that was John who did this. Then next he packed a meeting of the Gambino captains, which were his own supporters. He was then nominated to be the new boss of the Gambino family, and John took charge. After John took charge, his whole exterior changed. Most mob bosses wanted to be like a secret society, like under the radar. John was totally different. Gotti just used to wear windbreakers, sweatpants, and basic jewelry. But when he became head of the family, he wore tailored suits, cashmere coats, even monogrammed socks, and always wanted his hair cut perfectly, which gave him the legendary name, the Dapper Don. At the time of being in charge, he was still fighting an assault case. He had a crazy incident with a refrigerator salesman in 1984 in Queens with a man that didn't know who Gotti was. It was about a parking spot. Gotti slapped Robert Pysik in the face and took $300 from him, and Robert went to the police, not knowing that he would testify against the number one criminal in the country. But Pysik had good reason to fear Gotti, especially when media surfaced from Gotti's past about his neighbor, John Favara, hitting his son with a car in a complete accident. The man tried to apologize and was menaced by Gotti's wife with a baseball bat and it was said that he was cut in half with a chainsaw by Gotti himself. Pysik, hearing the news, had a sudden change of heart when his brake lines were cut and he was getting threats in the street, which is understandable because everybody was afraid of Gotti at the time. So Gotti walked. Two weeks later, April 1986, he's back in court again on more serious racketeering charges. A young prosecutor, John Gleason, was hoping this would humiliate Gotti and give him the max of 20 years. But instead, Gotti turned into a photo shoot. He ended up being a media sensation. They call him the supermodel of mobsters. He seemed so dapper and the people thought he was cool, he quickly became a favorite gangster. He would even try to cultivate people of the press. He would bring drinks like espressos and brandy and share it only with the women press, not the males. He would open doors for the women and things of that nature. 
Gotti considered himself a new element to organized crime. Gotti was untouchable. The verdict was not guilty and Gotti was acquitted. There were no wiretaps, no electronic listening devices, and really no evidence. But what no one knew is George Pape, which was one of the jurors, he was paid 60000 to withhold a guilty verdict against Gotti. He later was arrested. Over the course of the trial, the prosecutor called up two of Gotti's crew as witnesses, which showed that they were informants. Two years after the trial, Lee Boy Johnson, a childhood friend of Gotti, was found murdered. Billy Batista was never found. As each law enforcement agency set their sights on Gotti, they were ruining their chances to catch him in the first place. They were never working together, they were going against each other, and everybody was doing their own individual investigation. It was said at one point in time they had three different bugs in Gotti's hangout headquarters, the Bergen Fishing Club. So the third next to try to nail Gotti, the New York State Organized Crime Task Force. Ronald Goldstock, the boss, he believed one of his bugs recorded Gotti ordering a shooting on a union official, John O'Connor. John O'Connor ruined a restaurant owned by one of Gotti's friends. And as revenge, they shot him in the back. John lived. When Gotti went to court, the recordings that they had were terrible quality. With that being said, it made it hard to rely on how solid the case could be. And the verdict came in. The Dapper Don is not guilty again, y'all. That night, Gotti enjoyed his win. It was press. It was fireworks. It was celebrating all over the city. They treated Gotti like a hero and giving him the new name, the Teflon Don, because charges never stick. But patience and perseverance was the FBI strategy. Four years later, they were ready to make a move. The FBI got info that Gotti, that he spent his time at the Raven Knight Social Club in the Little Italy District on Mulberry Street. They were on 24-hour surveillance. They took pictures of politicians, gangsters, other mob bosses, union men, and other people they didn't think they were involved. But they need more than pictures and surveillance to convict Gotti. Jim Castrum was called there to get a device on the inside because they need to know what's going on inside of the club. His people are like burglars, lock pickers, get through alarms, etc. So they broke into the club, they got in, wiretapped it, and put bugs all over it. But there was one problem. They couldn't make out exactly what everyone was saying because of the music. And they would hear Gotti's voice, but they hear it disappear for long periods of time and then come back. That's when they realized the door next door to the club. And they were matching up the times that a young lady would leave the house when Gotti's voice would leave the club and the wiretaps. So they put two and two together and found out there was a hidden staircase right next door to her apartment where they had all their meetings and they came back to the club. The young lady was the widow of a late Gambino soldier named Mike Sorelli. As the FBI tried to figure out, how can you get in someone's house that's living there? She's a widower. 
is there 24-7, 365 until they learned that she was leaving town for Thanksgiving. That's when they snuck in her house and they bugged the whole house and sat and waited. Loud and clear, Gotti went over things over and over again. He talked about whacking Robert D. Bernardo and a few more incriminating conversations. And his signature line, we don't know when someone is a rat, but when in doubt, you kill them. The FBI had about five conversations that added up to about seven hours of conversation. They were confident they had a strong case against Gotti. But December 11, 1990, John and underboss Sammy Gravano were arrested on the murders that he spoke about on the tapes. At the pretrial, the Teflon Don seen him have a cool exterior and he seemed unbothered, confident and smiling, not knowing anything about the tapes. But when they started playing the tapes in the courtroom, Gotti already knew they had what they needed to have against him and the case was solid against him. At this time, his exterior had changed. He was no longer confident and cocky. He looked weak and concerned and the prosecutor loved every minute of it. But there still was another twist to the tapes. Gotti had been caught badmouthing his underboss, Sammy Gravano. But Sammy already had a gut feeling that something was on the tapes about him and John's relationship. So he broke mafia law. And without his boss's permission, he approached the FBI to hear the tapes. After Sammy hearing the tapes and hearing his boss badmouthing him, calling him a green-eyed monster and greedy and talking about firing him behind his back, Sammy breaks the omen tie, the code of mafia silence, and flips on Gotti and his entire mafia family. Sammy gave up 19 murders, also how the Castellano hit took place. During the trial, the courthouse was a Gotti show. People showed support. After all, he still was the Teflon Don. But the highlight of the trial was when Sammy testified for nine days. He told on everyone, including himself, with 16 murders. At this point, Everybody knew that John would get convicted. When the jury gave out the verdict, there was immediate riot outside of the courthouse. In June 1992, the Teflon Don was found guilty on all charges, racketeering, and five murders, including the Castellano hit. Gotti was sentenced to life in prison, 23 hours a day, solitary confinement. Dying in 2002 after serving 10 years of his prison sentence. To some people, a lot of New Yorkers maybe, Gotti will always be looked at as a modern-day Robin Hood, but others would say he was so unqualified and incompetent that he single-handedly ruined the Gambino crime family. Thanks for tuning in to the second episode of the World's Most Notorious Gangsters, the Teflon Don edition. I'm your host, Corey Franchise. Content comes out twice a week. Make sure you subscribe. Peace. Keep the change, you filthy animal.